Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. It's Friday, February 19th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiringshow.talmer.com, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, and photography, as many as you want at any time from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now... For your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. Now, if you're in the Bay Area, tonight is opening night for my next show. I'm performing Musetta in Puccini's La Boheme. We are setting it in the Tenderloin, where all the starting starving artists live in the Bay Area. Not all of them, but some of them. And so this opera was premiered 120 years ago this month. And we are bringing it back to show you just how relevant it is. This is the kind of opera that if you've never been to the opera before, I usually tell people, go see La Boheme. Because each act is short. The action is really fast. Our instrumentalists are from the San Francisco Opera, so they know the score really well. And it's a super fun cast. So that's at the Exit Theater tonight and tomorrow night and next weekend as well if you are in San Francisco. Michael Brown, Mario Woods, Tamir Rice, Eric Garner... Tanisha Anderson, Eric Harris, Walter Scott, Freddie Gray. I can sadly go on from there. These are names burned into American consciousness right now, all dead, all involved in encounters with law enforcement. We spent a number of episodes talking about the epidemic of shootings in the U.S. And once we usually get to the point of the data on the issue, there's a very unsatisfactory issue when we talk about tracking these law enforcement involved shootings. Last year, the UK newspaper, The Guardian, started a project called The Counted, a first-of-its-kind database for tracking law enforcement-involved deaths in the US. In 2015, they identified 1,140 people killed, with rates ranging from three for people identified as white up to 7.2 for those identified as black. And with rates, you mean per million? Per million, yeah. 
I'm not here to pass judgment or or say you know assess right or wrong here, but I do think it's really bizarre that we have no governmental system for tracking these deaths, and that a UK newspaper of all places has become the reliable source of information on the on the topic. So last month I was um, uh, reading uh, PLOS and I saw a new study from De- Dr. Nancy Krieger and she made a proposal to change that. She's a professor of social epidemiology at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Her research focuses on how people's health can be influenced by conditions in which they're born, live, work, including how economic policies and systems can affect it. In her PLOS paper, she summarized data Uh, from eight cities on law enforcement deaths going back to 1960 and ended with one singular idea. Let's start tracking these law enforcement-involved deaths as public health data. It's amazing to me that this isn't already happening. I mean, I would have assumed that there is some kind of way to track these incidents. And so, you know, I'm I'm kind of shocked that this is an issue um, in the sense that, that we don't have these data collected. It's not shocked to me because... Uh, for those that are familiar with U.S. policy, you know, when you think public health, especially at a federal government level, you tend to think about the CDC. And the CDC has essentially been restricted from doing public health analysis on everything from smoking to gun violence for a number of years. It's sort of an unwritten rule, but essentially Congress won't fund any public health work uh, involving th- that agency related to gun violence at this point. And that's why we don't have anything like this. Hmm. Uh, it's a really uh, delicate topic. And again, we're not here to pass judgment on on right or wrong in these situations. But as a science podcast, it's it seems ridiculous to me that we don't have the data to even begin the conversation. That's going to be our yeah. interview for this week. Any news stick out to you? Yeah, well, you know, Super Bowl was a couple weeks ago. And um, one of my favorite uh, kind of tweets around Super Bowl came from The Onion when they talked about how, you know, the confetti at the Super Bowl was shown to be uh, ripped up concussion papers. Uh, so, you know, obviously, that's a jab at the NFL. And I deserve a jab in my yeah. book. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, so, I mean, here, as a neuroscientist, I can say that there is a very good understanding now that not even concussions, but rather just the types of hits that you can get in full contact sports like football uh, can cause damage that can rear its head uh, much later on in life and cause really devastating neurodegenerative conditions. And we're mostly talking here about CTE. Yep. And uh, I'm going to acknowledge one thing. I'm a huge hypocrite. So the, uh, I love American football. Love it. I throw a big Super Bowl party every year. I can't not watch football when it's on. I just adore the sport. And there is no fucking way that my son is ever going to play football. There's no way. The data is so damning now in terms of repeated hits. And what is so deeply concerning to me about it is there's relatively new studies that have started to indicate that while it is repeated hits, it's not necessarily repeated hits to the head. Mm-hmm. That are well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, even when you have a small child, you know, you're told don't shake the baby. You know, there's a reason why you don't shake the baby. It's because that kind of pressure that, you know, is put on the baby's nervous system can cause permanent damage. And so, you know, CTE is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And it is essentially exactly what it sounds like after a number of 
you know, hits and they can be relatively, they can feel relatively minor, but it's just enough to provide this kind of um, damage to the brain that then the brain tries to, you know, repair. And, you know, we don't understand exactly all of the mechanisms, but we certainly know that the, you know, that, that, that there are um, dementia-like symptoms that can result and come up many years later. There is a massive search underway to understand CTE and its formation early because we have no predictive tests around CTE outside of people that are already exhibiting symptomatic effects. I know, at least at, at my university at UCSF, there's a group specifically targeting uh, imaging tau um, to, to, as an early predictor of, of CTE. Um, but yeah, so tau is a protein that's linked to a lot of neuro- neurodegenerative conditions, um, you know, that end up in, in uh, with symptoms of dementia. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's really damning about this, and the reason, you know, we wanted to talk about this right now, is that um, there's so many forces at play that are undermining the overall issue. Uh, just last month in, in December of 2015, the, the NFL had indicated they were going to partner with the NIH to fund a number of studies on CTE um, without any interference. Lo and behold, the NFL is pulled back from that series because the NIH selected uh, Robert Stern, who's a researcher at Boston University, has been very critical of the NFL in terms of his CTE work. And um, and the NIH basically was like, we're not having any of that. We're going to fund it all ourselves anyways. So huzzah to the NIH. But it's a really difficult situation because we have to be very aggressive about research right now because we can't, we have a whole cohort of people that are developing this. And we have no way to identify the risk patterns for it because it's not, we know it's not going to be the same person to person, let alone hit to hit. Um, and I think the most damning thing to me as, a, as a, a football fan is there's a number of players that I watched in the 80s and 90s that are suffering with this disease. And uh, a number of noble ones have committed suicide where they've shot themselves in the chest and left a note that they did it to preserve their brain for science. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? It's not every single retired NFL player who develops the condition. So, you know, we really do need to understand, you know, what are the individual risk factors um, that might, you know, lead someone to be a a, a bigger at bigger risk. And, you know, that way, like, I'm with you, like, my son's never going to play American football for that reason. Um, But if there was a way that I, you know, could be sure that he wasn't at risk for developing CTE, you know, I might reconsider that. But you know, it's just right now, we just don't know enough about it. And there's it's just too devastating for anyone who's studied neuroscience to imagine. And there's plenty of blame to go around from ranging from the equipment that we use, there's a lot of criticism of it. Um, But at the end of the day, we need to study people that are alive before they develop this situation, if there's going to be any hope to actually for science to actually have an input to it. So we've all been talking about things that sort of have have been around for a little while. But the reason that this came up uh, across my desk this week was because, of course, there's a new movie out um, called Concussion. Uh, Lead actor Will Smith is playing forensic pathologist Dr. Bennett Amalu, who first discovered CTE in a former NFL player. And so um, it's it's been uh, out for a a little while in the U.S., um, but it's also just out throughout Europe. I actually didn't like the movie. I'll have to say. Oh, really? What did no, you like I about just it? No, I just didn't. I just like as a pure form of like um, entertainment. Just entertainment. It was uh-huh. a little bit boring. Oh. All right. Well, was there good information in there? <laughs> no. <laughs> it was okay. So let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Dr. Nancy Krieger. 
This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, and photography, as much as you want at any time from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library with courses taught by award-winning professors and experts from places like National Geographic, Smithsonian, and the Culinary Institute of America. The Great Courses are normally priced at two to $300 each, but now you can get unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library all completely free for a month. You could sign up and watch The Inexplicable Universe Unsolved Mysteries presented by friend of the show Neil deGrasse Tyson and usually priced at $95 plus hundreds of other courses for free right now. To sign up for your free one-month trial, go to greatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's greatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. Dr. Krieger, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much for having me. So before we get into the the meat of this topic, I'm really curious how you got interested into the into this topic of why we need to track a police involved uh, deaths uh, at all. I'm a social epidemiologist, and what that means is that I'm concerned about social influences on the health of societies and the people who live in them. And that means I'm very concerned about health inequities, and health inequities can be understood as being differences in rates of disease or death or injuries between groups that are avoidable, unfair, and therefore preventable. So I, my work as a social epidemiologist, I do a lot of research on, for example, how racism affects health, understood at many levels, interpersonal, structural in terms of the long-lasting impact of Jim Crow, residential segregation, and much else. In the course of that, it's impossible to ignore the concerns that have been raised, particularly in the past year and a half, particularly by such movements as Black Lives Matter, about the impact of police killings on the well-being of this nation and the concerns that this has raised about the well-being of the communities affected, and also then in terms of the considerations that come up around the deaths of law enforcement officials in the line of duty. So... These became the immediate concerns, given that I've done a lot of work for a very long time on monitoring health inequities in cancer mortality, in all-cause mortality, in different kinds of diseases in this country. And this is adding to the list of kinds of inequities in health outcomes that we need to have data on to know how big the problem is, where it's a smaller problem, where it's a larger problem, what that can tell us about possibilities for prevention. The other thing that I would add is that my interest in this was also evident in work done more than 10 years ago by one of my doctoral students, Hannah Cooper, who is now an associate professor at Emory University. And in her work 10 years ago, she was beginning to document the impact of police violence on the health of people in the New York City area through research that she was doing at the time on injection drug use and policing policies. So this has been a topic of longstanding concern, but what really galvanized it and made me start to ask the question of why don't we have official data in this country on the number of people killed by the police? Why do we not have comparable 
data sets that allow us to understand how many people are killed by the police or other law enforcement officers and how many law enforcement officers are killed in the line of duty. That's what led me to this current round of work. So historically speaking, do we know why we don't have such a database in the U.S.? I mean, there are a number of databases that exist that uh, report on on overall for, uh, fatalities in the U.S. or police uh, deaths in the U.S., but why not police-involved uh, uh, deaths? So there are U.S. mortality data. There is a code on death certificates that gets used that's about death due to legal intervention, and we've published based on those data. The issue is that those data, by definition, will not be timely because states have to make sure the data are accurate, clean them up, and so there's always usually a minimally two-year lag, usually in getting mortality records at the state level, um, and when you then look at them aggregated for the national level. So, what we're, so it is possible to count those deaths, but the issue is it's not timely, number one. And secondly, there's also been work done that demonstrates that those data are an undercount, that there is misclassification, that not all cases that should be counted are counted. So there's active work going on and has been research published about what the extent of the underestimate is. So it's not correct to say we have no data, but we don't have timely data and we don't have data that's easy to get at the local level, which is where the impacts are and where the need for data is great. This is important to say from the public health standpoint. There's a separate long history over well over at least a century of attempts to get data from police departments as they got constituted and erected in different cities in the United States. And they do not have easy mechanisms for reporting these kinds of data, and they have a history of not wanting to share these data. Um, I'm aware of lawsuits that have been in a variety of cities that make it that where police departments have actively resisted getting these data. And last year, the New York Times had a front page story that reported on how even if police departments did submit data, it was collected in completely non-consistent ways that could not be compared across municipalities. One of the things that we do in public health, because we in public health have a very long history of counting dead people and counting sick people, is we make case definitions so that we can have data that can be compared over time and across places so that we can understand in a comparable manner where rates are high, where rates are low, and therefore what can be done to bring high rates down to what the low rates show is feasible. And what you proposed in a recent paper in PLOTS, and we'll have the link to the to the paper in our show notes, is that we should be tracking this as a public health data item. And before we get into some of the data that you tracked independently, is the public health system um, equipped? Is it uh, able to actually do some of this tracking? We have a world-class notifiable reporting system in the United States where if you go to a journal that has the very cheerful title, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Reports, you will see that week in, week out, the national tallies are reported for very rare diseases that are of concern in the United States. There's also reporting for 122 cities that have populations of a thousand or more, a hundred thousand or more on the weekly totals of deaths. So these are data that are possible. There's also very active work going on, I'm aware of, by colleagues in several different health departments, beginning to use more active, quick uh, surveillance systems to report yet more outcomes in real time. So we do have the capacity to do this. The question is whether this particular category of mortality becomes included in what become the standard notifiable reports. 
let's actually delve into uh, the study, the paper that came out in PLOS. Uh, if there is no sort of a data that a uh, large set of data that exists currently, what did you use to actually um, come to the conclusion that this kind of proposal makes sense? Well, we did two things. One, we did do the second ever long-term analysis of trends in deaths due to legal intervention using the public use mortality data that are available from the National Center for Health Statistics. And we did our analyses so that they go from 1960 to basically uh, 2012 in that paper, which was the most recent data available. Obviously, we're, the paper was published in 2015, so this points to the lag. The most recent data that we could access in 2015 were for 2012. And so this is part of what our proposal is trying to address because the mortality data, while absolutely crucial that we get through the standard um, public release mortality data, they're not timely enough for the issues that we need for prevention in real time. That's why, again, for epidemic epide infectious disease surveillance, you, which is what many of the notifiable conditions are, the data need to be reported on a very timely matter. So in that study in PLOSMED, what we did is we looked at the 60-year mortality trends for death due to legal intervention, and we looked at them for black versus white men ages 15 to 34, who are the groups known to be at highest risk of this kind of mortality in terms of the racial ethnic contrasts, um, the data do suggest as well that Latino and American Indian deaths are also high. Uh, in the U.S. national death data, however, Latino does not show up as a category in 1960. So that's one reason we couldn't, uh, nor does American Indian for the overall data set. So that's why we looked at black versus white in part. And we were able to look at several different cities that we picked from identified through the Guardian's website. And here I want to bring in the notion of what we did with the Guardian. So the Guardian, this is what's very important that also kicked off interest in the past year, was that last June, they took the unprecedented step of launching a national comprehensive website that was that collected data in real time through sc scanning the media and all kinds of public sources and also having people report things indirectly on persons killed by the police in the United States. And on June 1st, they launched it. On June 9th, they already reached 500 counts, which is what the FBI had been estimating was the national toll. So this meant that the FBI was underestimating by at least two times what the actual number of deaths is. Last year it came to 1,138. This year already we're at 92, which means we're on track again, according to The Guardian, to have about over a 1,000 people killed by the police in the United States. And these data were really important. So we took from The Guardian the five cities that had had the highest number of deaths as of the beginning of June in terms of the absolute count. The, and so also these, the three cities. These are big the cities? General. Um, they generally, but but of varying sizes. I mean, uh, New York was in there, Los Angeles was in there. They're huge, but so was Cleveland, for example. And so we and we also included cities that had uh, the highest a high amount of news coverage with regard to protests. For example, Ferguson, because that wasn't many deaths, but it was a huge death in terms of the death of Mike Brown and what that triggered and galvanized in terms of outpourings of concern in this country. And we looked at the rates, and what we could see is that within cities at any given point in time and also across cities, the black-white difference for the risk of mortality was anywhere from 5 to 19 times higher. 
that means that black men on average in this age group were in some cities at some points five times more likely than white men to be killed by the police, at other times 19 times more likely. When you see that kind of variation and you're in public health, you know something can be prevented. Did you have any sort of suspicion that the rate was going to be uh, that difference, that variation was going to be that high going into this study? Or was that a really surprising result to you? It was the high end was surprising. The prior paper, however, that we had done that looked at the variation from 1960 to 2011 for black and white men in relation to county income quintile had already shown us that the black-white difference had peaked in the late 1960s, early 70s, and then had come down to an on average level of about three in the more recent period. What's really important is that an on average value of three for the nation doesn't tell you what the variation is at a given point in time in the nation. So that's where by doing the more detailed analysis at the city level, we were able to show some of the different kinds of alarming variation one can see across cities. Again, at a given point in time, comparing across cities, one city was five, the other was 19 times higher, and also within a city over time. So there are a lot of variables that I want to tease out here that you've mentioned already. So one was that you chose a really specific length of time that was that was fairly long. We're not looking at, you know, just current trends here with this. You're going all the way back to 1960. I was wondering if you could explain to me why you chose such a length of time. So what we have done in our prior studies is that often when you look at data happening only in the current time period, it becomes very easy to make the mistake that how things are the way things how are, things always are. And so that, for example, I had gotten into doing the work on looking at longer trends in health inequities because an argument began to start to appear in the early 2000s saying that it wasn't that big a deal that health inequities were getting somewhat bigger in our country because it's always the case that as health in general improves for everyone, it of course improves more quickly for people who are better off than people who are worse off. So basically the argument went, you would have a trickle down effect and you would see that yes, maybe the inequities are getting a bit bigger, but really it's okay because on average, I mean, everyone's health is really improving. It's just that it's improving somewhat faster for people who are better off. But it concerned me to hear that because I thought that that probably reflected the current political realities in the United States, but not a fact of nature, not something that always had to be. So in fact, we did our first major study that looked at just cause of death that's called premature mortality, so all deaths before age 65, and looked at them from trending from 1960 to, at that point, uh, 29 was when we had the data available for that study, 2009. And what we found was that actually population health improved, mortality rates down, but between 1965 and 1980, the health inequities, the magnitude of the difference by county income quintile and also by race ethnicity, those gaps got smaller. It was only after 1980 that you had the pattern of not only some stagnation in the decline of rates, but also the widening of health inequities. So this reflects a profound political shift in terms of all that we know that changed in 1980 with the actual advent of explicit what are now called neoliberal policies back in 1980 in the U.S. It was called Reaganism. So that beforehand, before 1980, you could actually see that both population health was improving and health inequities were declining, whereas after 1980, that wasn't true. So that taught a very big lesson about saying you have to historically contextualize 
the data that you look at. So we could look at what's going on with police mortality and police violence now, but that won't tell us the full range of what's possible or what has happened or what the changes in U.S. society. And we need that much broader historically informed perspective, informed in part by quantitative data, to understand where we are now and how it could be different. Now, obviously, you choose eight very different types of cities that are spread throughout the U.S. They're all very different in a lot of ways, uh, both in size, demographic makeup, um, et cetera. And I'm wondering if the the geographic information um, uh, resulted in any sort of interesting findings. Uh, and then uh, as a add-on to that, how reliable is the data from different cities over time? It, uh, like, can we go back all these years in every single one of these towns, regardless of size, and feel really comfortable that the data that you're utilizing is, is good? So those are several questions. So I'll start with the last one. So U.S. death certificate data have been, since the 1960s, quite complete. In other words, deaths are not missed. Very, very few deaths are missed. Whether they're classified correctly, as I mentioned earlier, is another question. And we know that there is an undercount. Whether the undercount of people who are killed by the police varies systematically across different parts of the country, there aren't data on that. And that's a very good research question. And I do know that there are students now who are getting very interested in these questions and other colleagues as well who are beginning to try to figure out how to research these questions. So what we do know is that probably that these are deaths are an undercount. And if they're an undercount, and let's just say for the sake of argument that the undercount is, for example, which has been shown for sometimes other outcomes, worse among black compared to white persons killed by the police. Just say this as a hypothetical argument. What that means is that the risk ratios that we calculate, saying what the risk is of such mortality for black versus white, will be a conservative underestimate of what the true burden is. So the data that we report are likely a conservative estimate, or underestimate in other words, of what probably the real rate ratio is comparing the risk of death among the black versus white men in these different age groups. So one can always worry about having imperfect data because no data are ever perfect unless you have a simulated data set. But the next step that you always have to take is to think about how do those imperfections, how do those problems or those biases affect what the parameter estimates are, the measures of effect that you're trying to detect. And here we can say that what we have is probably an underestimate of how bad the difference in the risk is across these groups. So that's the question on the part of data. On the part of the city variability, absolutely. Again, there's much, we did what would be called effectively a descriptive study. We provided no data about the cities. We just showed the possible patterns of variation that one can see across these different cities over time. That raises exactly the kinds of questions that you're interested in. And again, I am aware of students and other colleagues that are seeking to start to answer those kinds of questions. This comes back to the value of a public health comparative approach. If you look at public health literature, you will see that we are constantly comparing rates of outcomes and risk ratios across different social groups and different other age groups, et cetera, across time and across place and across countries and across regions, because we always want to understand what the population patterning is to figure out the right questions to ask about what drives those patterns. And I want to make an important distinction here. When it comes to these these deaths involving law enforcement, you're not making any sort of judgments on 
the nature of that death, whether it was justified force, anything like that? Absolutely not. That is something that is what the criminal justice system and lawyers and others need to determine. What we do in public health is we count. And so this is to come up with the count of people who are killed by the police and other law enforcement agents, and also the count of other law enforcement agents who are killed in the line of duty. Right now, there is a private website that counts those deaths, and that's very important. But the idea here is to have a common count that would be trustworthy data that all could agree on is trustworthy, that comes from public health agencies that can report these data in real time. And the real time matters because just as infectious disease outbreaks have consequences immediately for the areas in which they are occurring, so too does this kind of violence. Have you gotten pushback from certain groups regarding this proposal, whether it's uh, police unions or or other groups that might be not interested in the in this kind of uh, information being garnered? I have seen comments in media accounts because media journalists contacted uh, several police organizations and some dismissed this as saying public health couldn't do this because our data are in shambles, for example. That's a direct quote, which I find ironic given that police departments can't even produce the data and public health actually has a very good history of producing quite important data. We're watching right now a completely different debacle, for example, in Flint, Michigan, where there was dissension within the public health agencies and people who are trying to report problems were silenced, but the data came out. The systems are there to monitor these issues. So this is, uh, like you described, this is a, a descriptive set study that led to a proposal of sorts from you. What do you see as a, a logical next step if people were to take up this proposal? I've been contacted by colleagues at a variety of different health departments and also public health um, organizations to start seeing what might be feasible for them to do. And because they're the ones who will be and have, can have the power state by state to put this into effect, I think we're going to be seeing some interesting possibilities come up that may actually provide different venues for ways of using different monitoring systems to report these data. So I'd say that these are active discussions underway, and I'm hopeful that there will be some areas that take that set precedent and that create model approaches that other areas can then follow. But given the national discourse, especially over the last year, given unrest in Ferguson and other places, you don't see this as being more of a national issue from a public health perspective? Shouldn't, oh, I absolutely. Yeah, I, shouldn't the CDC take this up? They should, but it has to be. But we, again, are a republic. So it, the data have to be sorted out in each state and, and compiled and reported nationally. That's how the data systems work. So each state has to be able to do what it needs to do to be able to report the data to them for the mortality records. That's true for the way that the more, the notifiable disease reporting occurs. It goes to the state agency that reports it to the CDC. So there are levels that have to happen here and it always helps to have to create it and make it go national as quickly as possible. You need to have somebody showing that it's feasible. Now I'm going to be slightly unfair to a scientist and ask you a, a a question on the future. How likely do you think it is that this proposal is going to go somewhere, that we're going to see uptake on this issue in a, in a significant way? I think we have a real window of opportunity here. I'm aware that colleagues that do work in policy like to talk about those particular moments when windows of opportunity arise, and this is one. There's a lot of public pressure, and this particular proposal has a lot of advantages 
It works goes only through public health agencies. It does not involve Congress, and it does not involve the police. That's both a strength and a weakness to a certain extent, because you, um, without the involvement of those two components, I think the utilization of this data might be less than it would be. You're sent, like, we're not getting buy-in. I suspect that's not the case. I suspect that were the data there. And the fact is that the Guardian's data right now, the FBI is paying close attention to them. They're using it as a potential model for the pilot they're supposed to launch this year to emulate that. The head of the the head of the FBI, James Comney, has actually said it is embarrassing. It is ridiculous and it's outrageous that a UK newspaper is providing counts that the federal government cannot. So I think there's actually quite a lot of interest in these data and having them be credible and from, they should not be an official mystery. So I believe that were there to be public health data and people are paying very close attention to different kinds of public health data, people pay attention to what the mortality rates are, they pay attention to the new concerns that are coming up with regard to monitoring, for example, about the concern about this new infectious disease, Zika. I don't think these will be data that are ignored. I think the point is, is to have credible, timely data and that bringing a public health perspective offers a new perspective on what the problem is because it frames it within the context of wanting to do what can be done to have sustainable and thriving communities in the United States. Well, here's hoping we're going to have more credible, timely data. Dr. Nancy Krieger, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much. Well, that was a very sobering interview. Yeah, but I also thought it was a very hopeful one to a certain extent. Like the fact that uh, there is this pronounced difference in, uh, across racial lines is saddening for uh, no question about it. But at the same time, the fact that the infrastructure is there within the public health community to potentially do this, uh, and all we need is the will. It, it didn't sound like from her perspective that it would take a lot of effort to actually start tracking this. It's just a matter of a little bit of will to get there. Yeah, but anytime that will involves a lot of politics, it just, you know, makes me tired. It does. I mean, but it's not passing judgment. Like, I I could imagine that we start to see gender differences come up or really specific geographic issues um, come out. And, and really, that gives those local communities, you know, in any way we want to describe them, an opportunity to really address the issue. What she's seeing as a pure scientist, she's seeing, well, if you have this kind of factor of difference between these two communities, just looking at race, not looking at other variables, that's in, in public health land, that's preventable. Mm. That's a word that really resonated with me because that means something in the public health realm, that there's something really wrong here that we have to address. Now, there's also, if you really look at the paper, you can see there's broad improvement across every category she tracked over time. Uh, but I think her her statement that you can't just look at one pocket of time and say, in the last five years, it's it's worked out. That's just not how the science works. So um, I, I think there is reason for optimism. But at the same time, um, it, it's, it's a completely serious issue. And, you know, maybe maybe there's a way for us to find maybe we'll, we'll, we'll stumble across an island, you know, metaphorically speaking, where this isn't such a big problem or, you know, where, you know, the data can show that that some interventions have been really effective. And that then all maybe it takes could is be, one city. Yeah. Well, and it, it probably has. I mean, let's be honest, it probably has to be a major city. Mm-hmm. It probably has to be one that has significant sort of social and, you know, implications around around the work. But it it doesn't have to be nationwide mm-hmm. for this to work. 
But the fact is, uh, it, you know, when she quoted the FBI director as saying, like, this is a national embarrassment that we don't track this stuff, that's, he's law enforcement. He's, he's the face of law enforcement in this country, being the head of the FBI. So the worry that I had was, like, what kind of pushback are you going to get from from police and other law enforcement agencies, maybe there's a lot more a reason to be optimistic that that may not actually be an issue here. Well, let's hope so. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, and our anonymous supporters. And once again, this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, and photography as much as you want at any time from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try the Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indrevis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.